Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times, now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti. Quick reminder before we begin, because I don't tell you this enough times, you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game, FA Cup games too apparently, before anyone else, simply by downloading The Times app to your smartphone. In the studio this week, I'm excited to say, we've got Clive Petty and Rory K. Smith, and down the line, we have Tony Barrett up on beautiful Merseyside. Let's get started at Anfield. We, we need to go to the side a little bit, and because, uh, of course, it is the 25th anniversary of Hillsborough on, uh, on Tuesday. Tony, you, you're, you're obviously there. I obviously start with you because um, you're, you're, you're from Liverpool. Somebody asked me, like, why do we count anniversaries in the sense that, uh, you know, it's just random. 20, why 25? Why not 24, 26? Why not every day? For the people who are there, who are, live, who are living it, who are sort of still, you know, living with the memory of, of, of what happened uh, in 1989, did this feel any different? No, it does. But I don't think it's just the, the number. I don't think it's the fact that it's the 25th. The, the quarter century is... is it's Cameron's apology and, and, the, and the hip. Yeah, it's, it's that. It's the fact that there are now inquests taking place. People are now being learning who the victims were. They're learning what their relationships were, what their jobs were, what the schools they went to. So we're now getting a, a human picture of 96 people that I think this tragedy has always lacked. And now that you have that, it is giving an extra sense of emotion. I, I spoke to some Hillsborough families who, who at Anfield yesterday, and to be honest with you, one of them was visibly upset at the occasion because it, it is it's, it is so strenuous. I, I don't know how you would keep delivering this. People people have said in the past they need to move on. How would that even be possible? How do you move on from something so enormous, something that has happened to your family, to your immediate loved ones, and yet it continues day in, day out in so many different ways. And you could see the enormity of the occasion in their face. You could see, you could hear in the way they were saying. And their emotions were tangible. And, and that was what really brought it home to me, that this 25th anniversary, as much as it being a, a significant number, it's also a significant occasion for, for everything that's now happening. Do you, do you think that perhaps, you know, the word closure gets, gets 
thrown around, but at least closure with regards to, I, I suppose, the, the, the law enforcement inquiry, um, some sort of definitive closure about what specifically happened and an acceptance by all and, and perhaps some prosecutions. Do you think that might then allow people to, obviously won't take away the grief, but it, it'll become perhaps more of a, of a personal grief rather than right now the collective grief that's there and that's also motivated by by the need to, to, to get some kind of justice, some kind of recognition. No, I think that's right, Gabba. It, 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 it's a political grief as well. It's a, it's a philosophical situation. Every every kind of human emotion is being pricked by this and it has been for, for a quarter of a century. And there is a need for closure. The families don't want to continue this forever. There's, uh, Margaret Aspinall said to me that she's missed her grand, grandchildren growing up because she's so devoted to, to getting what she sees as truth and justice. So from their point of view, they, they crave closure more than anyone, which is why, why I've always resented when people from outside the situation have, have used that as a stick to beat them. But why don't they just walk away? What, what, what difference it would have made to their lives over the last 25 years for this to be resolved immediately? It is incalculable. You just can't imagine what difference it would have made. These would have been very, very different people than they are now. These are people who've had to fight a, a political and legal campaign for such a significant pr- proportion of their lives. And they would love to go on holidays. They would love to take time off work and not be involved with MPs, not be involved with solicitors. But they have to be. They have to be because they never got closure initially. Obviously, the 25th anniversary was the backdrop, but uh, Rory, there was uh, a football match to to be played, and um, I was struck by, by Stephen Jarrett at the end, who obviously has a, a, so much invested in, in Hillsborough it, it, itself because of his, uh, you know, of his, of his cousin, because of uh, obviously being from Liverpool, being a Liverpool captain. He, he called it the, the longest, uh, I think the longest 90 minutes He's he's ever played. I mean, this guy looked absolutely drained. Was it a seesaw of emotions? Of what was a seesaw match? I think, I, I, to be honest, I can't remember other than than players winning World Cup finals, Champions League finals, FA Cup finals, winning titles, seeing a player cry on the pitch. Just in an in what? No, it's not an ordinary league game. That that's clear. That it, for a variety of reasons, it wasn't an ordinary league game. But it was. It was a league game that you know nothing. As he said said afterwards, nothing's theirs yet. Um, I've never seen a reaction quite that powerful. It was it was quite quite moving. I think, and it it would be the case. It, it's di- it's difficult now because football's changed so much, and and kind of the tribalism is so ensconced in people that that it's quite hard to see past all that. But I think in the same way as when Ryan Giggs won the ex- the sort of the, the the lead title that made him the most decorated player ever, there was kind of a general sense in football that 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 was a good thing, that Ryan Giggs, whatever his personal peccadilloes, has been a good thing for football, and, and he deserves a huge amount of kind of praise and adulation. And I think it, the same should really be applied to Gerard. I think he's he's not a perfect human being, he's, he's probably not a perfect footballer, but he he has been kind of what you want from a player for 15 years, and I think that it was quite a powerful image to see him so so moved on the pitch. And the difficulty, I guess, for Liverpool now is having had that high, how do they respond? And it's all very well saying, oh, you know, we'll, we'll go again, we'll go to Norwich. You know, it'll, it'll be exactly the same. But that's, that's easier, easier said than done, I think. But it was certainly, it, it felt like a, for Gerard particularly, it must have felt like an enormous moment for him that something he'd given up on, no question. You know, he'd spoken to, to Stephen at any point in the last sort of 
three, four years, he, he thought that his chance to win the lead was gone. And suddenly they are now, they're not the only team with it in their hands, but they are, they have a, a massive advantage. And, and you should just see how much it meant, it meant to him. And that, that in itself, I think, was quite powerful, probably for everyone who, who watches football, whether they love Liverpool, hate Liverpool, or are, are indifferent to Liverpool. Hey, Tony, you, you've, you've obviously seen Jared grow. Um, I think you guys are roughly the same age as well. Um, Similar levels of football inability. <laughs> thank you. I didn't think I would see him actually crying on, on the pitch. Is that in character? I think it's more in character than people realise. People have a, there are misconceptions about Stephen and, and the way he is as a person. He, he, he's perceived to be generally downbeat and, and, and not particularly open with his, his emotions. But if he is one of those people who, if you speak to the people around him, they will, they will paint a very different picture. He's, he's someone who's very in tune with his city. He's very in tune with the club he plays for. He grew up supporting Liverpool. And I think it. I don't want to put words into his mouth, but but my reading of, of yesterday in, in in the display of motion we saw was he was eight or nine years old at the time of Hillsborough. His cousin who died was ten. They were contemporaries. They they were young boys who were growing up together. He lost someone who was his friend and his cousin. And if you, there's a line in his book which which is again being overlooked, and he, he says he plays for John Paul Gill, who who's his cousin who died at Hillsborough. He said he actually says that he played for him and. The enormity of Liverpool having a title challenge, which takes us back to that time, late 80s, when Liverpool did have title challenges. And that happens at the time, the 25th anniversary. The captain is someone whose cousin died at Hillsborough at the age of 10. I, 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 don't, I, I would be surprised if, if any of us didn't have some kind of emotion at that. I just, what, what kind of person wouldn't, in a way? And there, there was actually some people who were, I looked at social media, which is no gauge, and there were some people who were, who were looking down at Gerard for that display of emotion. And it just baffles me because football should be about emotion, especially in that kind of extreme situation. And I thought it was really heartening to see Stephen Gerard act like that because I think we'd all like to think that we would care so much that we'd be the type who would, would display our emotions in, in a similar way whether that be crying or whatever we will be emotional it's, it's funny isn't it that in an age where not to get sort of cod philosophical but in an age where kind of grief is such a that we're, we're also quick to express our grief and there's almost like a competitive edge to it to the expression of grief that it can seem confected and yet when you get something that that is genuine emotion and i think part of what of Gerard's reaction was grief does it, because of the, as, as Tony says, kind of the occasion that it was and the timing of it all, um, that we kind of sneer at it. He is Mr. Liverpool. The only thing that stands for you know, once Carragher left, that was the connection. I think everybody in football would love to have that kind of romantic idea that, you know, it, that this is a local boy made good leading his team once again. And on that occasion, I think Tony's right and you're right. Anybody would be overcome by that emotion. It shows what it, it actually means something. For all the foreign imports and everything that the game has had, this is what people actually cry out for, isn't it? Uh, a, a homegrown talent leading his city, hopefully in his case, to to to, uh, to triumph. On to the game because it, it was, I think, a tremendous game uh, for the neutrals. Though there were some mistakes in it, which I think that that added uh, to it. I have to start with the the, the, the Raheem Sterling ankle breaking crossover Pearl Washington stroke Tim Hardaway uh, move, which you guys are looking at me because there's a sport called basketball, basketball. which other people play, and and this is was kind of the the, the football version of it. It's pretty special, wasn't it, Clive? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen. I mean, to have 
company who, you know, up until that game started at the weekend was lauded as the best defender in the world. Yeah, can I, can I, can I I'm not say sure something about that? Can I say something about that? All right. I, at the risk of annoying some people, I'm getting to the point. I, I try not to watch the games on, on, on Sky during the commentary. But I'm getting freaking tired of this. Only in the Premier League. This is a great. Vincent Company's got to be the greatest. You know, but what? Because 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 Thiago Silva plays in France and you don't see him. And Mehdi Benassi doesn't play in Europe. So you don't see these people. So you have to definitively say this. You see a highlight of Gerard Piquet making a mistake. So all of a sudden, he's a turd. But you forget all of Vincent Company's. I mean, I, I said, he's a phenomenal player. He's a great person, which I think is, is just as important. In fact, it's a lot more important than being a great footballer. It might be there, but you don't need to ram it down our throats no, all the time. How, whoa, this is so fantastic. You'll never see anything like this. Before, you, before you have a coronary, I, <laughs> I, I heard that in commentary, and I, I'm the same as you. I think Tompany's fantastic. He's a, great, he's a great defender. That is as bad as I've seen him play. I don't really know of anybody who thinks he's the best defender in the world. I, I, you don't really hear that argument regularly other than when Thomas had to say he's the best defender in the world. No, I don't, I don't know anybody who thinks that. Well, well actually, I bring that up because it was said in commentary, I don't I believe he's a fantastic defender. He's one of my favourite players in the Premier League. And if you want someone who actually went on record as saying he was the best defender in the world, consult Mr. Graham Sunes in the Sunday Times. Ah, right. Top of his column. But as I was just pointing out, he had been mooted as the best defender in the world. And <laughs> by, by Graham Sooners. And, yeah, by Graham Sooners. And, yeah, Man who signed so, Phil Babb from England Benfica. And Dean Saunders. Okay. I haven't seen defender or goalkeeper is sent running out of a stadium by just a, a swivel of a hip since, I think it was probably Falcao in the bloody World Cup. I mean, it was just fantastic. They were gone. And to still show that maturity and finish it off was fantastic. Yeah, he, but Tony, to be fair, this should really be about celebrating... Sterling, right? Yeah. It was a fantastic. It was it was the maturity and the level of uh, um, poise, poise right. and intelligence to, to actually do that for a nineteen-year-old was was fantastic. Yeah, I, 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 I need to ask you about Sterling, Tony, because after Italy knocked out England on, on penalty kicks in the twenty twelve quarterfinals, I was sitting with one Guillaume Balague in a flat in Warsaw. We were watching this on television. We decided to tweet out our. Um, uh, our England eleven for the 2014 World Cup, trying to predict two years later, and Guillaume insisted that Raheem Sterling had to be in there, and I'm like, well, he was like uh, 18 at the time, 17, who knows? Every time I see this guy, it's not just his ability, but he he seems actually really composed and really versatile. Is this just the guy he is, or is it is it down to uh, Rogers? Or I would look at him, and I might even go so far as to suggest. He's Liverpool's third best player. I actually think who you put put as the face to Suarez and Gerard. Yeah. I, yeah, I think he might be nice. I think he may well be Liverpool's. Favorite. He's been Liverpool's. He's been in Liverpool's top three performance since Christmas. And the the great thing about Sterling is that he had two years where people thought he wasn't going to fulfil his potential, especially people outside the club. They saw someone who, at the age of seventeen, was a was a special talent, and who by the age of nineteen had these weaknesses in his game that were going to be exposed. And like what? Had, well, people were actually quite, listen. I I I don't want to blow my own trumpet here, but I, I picked him as the as Liverpool player to watch in two thousand and ten. I, I thought the talent was that obvious. So when people were questioning and they were questioning, it surprised me, and I didn't get it. But it was endemic. There were even people who questioned whether he was quick. As he seemed, there were these kind of strange reasons why Raheem Sterling was not going to be a top player. I I don't think there's been a player I've seen probably since 
Steve, probably since Steven Gerrard at Liverpool, Wayne Rooney at Everton. I don't think there's been a player on Merseyside who's been so obviously a special talent since those two. Raheem Sterling is a very, very special talent. He's 19 and he's the best player in the pitch, arguably, against Manchester City. He's scoring goals like he scored on that kind of occasion with so much pressure on the situation, on the game, on, on the occasion itself, everything about it. Raheem Sterling, in that first half, produced the kind of performance that I would say was a world-class first-half performance. I'm not saying he's a world-class player because I, don't, I think he's still some way to go before you'd even start talking about that. But that performance, the way he took the goal, everything about it, the way he took the game to Manchester City was world-class. The challenge now is to keep on doing that week in, week out. And the interesting thing is his form is picking up. As the games get more difficult, as the pressure grows, this is the form that's rising. Daniel Sturridge, by contrast, is struggling a little bit. Lewis Suarez's purple patch came in December, November, December, January. Raheem Sterling and Steven Gerrard are the two Liverpool players who, as the games get more difficult, they're the big two. Roy, we, 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 because we, we love Manuel Pellegrini, we have to show him some tough love. Or, or do we? Because that first half, I thought, was was horrible. It's really easy to say they lost, they went 2-0 down, weren't they terrible, didn't you make mistakes? To me, it was a really good game of football, a really even game of football in terms of the time that they, that either side was on top. And so in, in, in that context, Liverpool got a little bit, you know, it was a stroke of luck that they got the third goal. You probably would have said City would, would have got it. So it's hard to castigate Pellegrini or City too much for a game that could so easily have gone their way. And the other thing I, I should say about City, Di Michelis so often lambasted that's as well as I've seen anybody control Suarez and he, they basically nullify storage Tony my, my friend Mo who's, uh, who's from Manchester he's convinced that City will now win the title and his logic for that is that Mourinho is special and he will beat Liverpool but more to the point he said look we went out there Liverpool were on fire they had all the emotion and City basically had to play most of the game without best striker without their best midfielder, probably their best player in Yaya Torre, um, and with their best defender having an absolute stinker. And still, with different officiating, they would have won at Anfield. Is that an overly optimistic, light blue-tinted view? It, it is, but I think that's what you should do this time of season. I think you should see the reasons why your team will win the league. And, and, and if, you, if you look at the three teams who are in the title race, there are reasons why all three can win it. Yes, he was seen in some quarters being a definitive, a title-defining game. It wasn't that Liverpool now have to, to win the next four. They have to go from 10 straight wins to 14 straight wins. Because if you look at Chelsea's games, apart from the game at Anfield, they should and probably will win all three. Manchester City, apart from going to Goodison, I'd be surprised if they dropped too many points in the others. So every team can see reasons why they should win it and we can also see the obstacles that can prevent them winning it. The thing that surprised me most is that Chelsea are 5-1 to one because basically Chelsea will win the other three games and it will come down to the game at Anfield and Jose Mourinho will look upon that as his chance to win the league. I thought it was such a fantastic spectacle but there's one tiny and I don't always want to pick on reference, there's one tiny thing that bugs me a little bit is that Pellegrini said this too, the referee had a good game and I look at this and I'm like dude, you missed three penalties and Suarez could well have been sent off I, I just tell me out am I crazy I mean anybody want to argue that Sacco and Jekyll um, no, is not I'm, a penalty I'm, 
I'm of the Pellegrini school of things happening football matches, not all of them get seen. And I agree, there was, there, I thought there were two or three penalties myself. I thought Suarez, at the very least, sailed very, very close to wind when he took a tumble, having already been booked. But in terms of, it depends on what you think a referee's there for. I know they're there to, ostensibly to enforce the rules, but they're also there to allow a football match to happen, and I thought that happened just yeah. thought. You, you can still so, allow the football match to happen by calling a penalty when, when Sacco uh, launches. In fact, the idea that how we touch Jekyll doesn't matter. You you do that, it's a penalty, even if you don't touch. I that thought, I thought first... it was a penalty. I thought Company yeah. on Suarez was a penalty. Company on Suarez was a penalty every time. We I, thought, I thought Skate was handball was a penalty. All right, uh, just to wrap this up, the run-in, this is the part where I'm told to ask people predictions. Here goes, Clive, your 2013-14 Premier League champion will be... All right, Manchester, take some Manchester City. Rory? If a team wins when Chelsea go to Anfield, then the team that wins will be the champions. Who do you think will win when Chelsea go to Anfield? You'd have to say Chelsea, wouldn't you? You'd have to back Chelsea in that situation. All right. Barrett? My prediction throughout the season has been Manchester City, and I will stick to that. All right. Right, let's do West Brom. Yeah, West Brom on. and Spurs. Yeah, now, uh, Rory Smith didn't want us to talk about this because uh, presumably he hates Spurs or he'd rather talk about I Arsenal hate, again because he loves big clubs. I hate I all like teams Spurs. equally. But we had a fight back from 3-0 down to 3-3. And, and I have to ask this about Pepe Mel. Since, since he got here, you know, he's been viewed sort of bizarrely. People are like, okay, the novelty of him writing mystery novels wore off very, very quickly. And then there was the novelty of the fact that, you know, they're horrible in one half. Gab, Gab, can I get off? I've got Burnham on the line. Can I, oh, can I Andy Burnham on the line. Yes, you go. You, you talk to your fellow socialist. And um, thanks for See coming you, on. Speak to you later, Tim. For those who don't know and shows you how uh, we actually tape the show in real time, uh, Tony Barrett had to leave us to go speak to the MP Andy Burnham, presumably about Hillsborough. So, yeah, so Pepe Mel. Now he's come out and said, well, we probably won't be here next year, even if, if they stay up. It's a bit bizarre. I, I, I don't understand why you would bring this guy in. He gets the job. He keeps you up. Assuming he does, and he will. Uh, you're making a face. I think it's very, very, it's going to be really tight down the, in fact, at Clive Petty's instruction this morning, in the newspaper, uh, pull out the game. We've done a, a sort of look through at the, the run-ins for the, the teams in the rele- relegation battle. And West Brom, it'll be really, really, really tight for West Brom. And it's. It, Have you been disappointed in Pepe? Well, not, I've not been disappointed. I, I didn't understand the appointment in the first place. I thought he did well at Betis for a season, but you look at the rest of his career, and it's he's he's, he's obviously a decent manager, but I don't, don't think he's any more than that. And I think West Brom is a club that have been trying to. They've almost. It's great that they're well run, that they they cut their cloth according to the money they make. That's all massively praiseworthy. But there comes a point where you have to say, right, you have to spend a bit of money to make a bit of money. And I think that's where West Brom have, have let themselves down. Where I come from, if you're a team fighting to avoid relegation and you're 3-0 up at home and you do not win the game, you instantly get the sack. And, and I think that's, with a few minor exceptions, and no, Carlo Ancelotti was not at home. He's not Turkish. Istanbul's not his home. They weren't fighting relegation. And they weren't fighting relegation. Can you work out how Spurs got back into it and how West Brom let this get, get away? I've no idea, but it's... A- if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's a, it's not a habit, it's a, well, it's a, a very bad habit to develop when you're sitting that low down the table. I don't think, no, absolutely you're out, right, no team should find themselves 3-0, three 3-0 three up and just walk away with a point that that's at, at home. And to do it, what, twice in... Well, successive home games is just ludicrous. I'm not sure how much of that's down to the manager. I mean, you know, um, surely they're professional footballers. Just that they should be able to close the game out from there, surely. I don't think it's Spurs. It's no grand plan that Spurs, you know, decide to go through and run and come back. You're you're not going to praise Tim? Yeah, what, doing it for Tim? What, what, let's go 3-0 down for Tim so we can show how much loyalty we have and come back to to, to (laughs) 3-3? Lull the opposition to default. You're not buying any of that? No. No, No, not at all. All just checking. Sherwood described Ericsson, uh, Ericsson's goal as Burke Camp-esque, which I thought was interesting, that he's comparing him to an Arsenal player as well, which I thought was a nice uh, frisson. Now, um, some people suggest that Christian, uh, uh, Ericsson is indeed the Christian that the devil warned us about. Does, Does this change anything? For Tim Sherwood, or uh, and, and if you're Tim Sherwood, Roy, would you be annoyed just with the sheer amount of leaks that come out? I mean, last week before the Sunderland game, that that comes out and the the, the whole thing with with the confrontation and whatever, did you just get used to it? That it you're dead men walking. I mean, it depends who's leaking. Who's leaking the story? Yes, I was thinking that. Yeah. But no. Well, I think we all kind of know who's leaking the story. Um, and I don't want to say it because she's a good source for, 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 for many people. But um, I, I don't understand why Spurs can't keep some of this stuff under wraps. Well, it's, when clubs are winning, there are very few leaks because there's very, there's very little to leak. When things are going wrong, when things are uncertain, there are lots of leaks. Partly because journalists are sort of sniffing around asking more questions. Uh, and partly because there's more kind of unhappy parties with agendas who want to get a message out there. So I think, but it, w- what's the message you want to get out here? He's he's most likely not going to be the Spurs manager next season. Well, there's people there's people jostling for position. That's fair to say, isn't it? There's people within Great. Spurs who are jockeying to make sure that when the effluent hits the fan, that they are not getting splattered. So that that's what that's the you, you know that gab that's the process that when things when things are starting to get a little bit kind of uncertain, people that's when the media comes into when people within football see the media as a legitimate option. 
But what I don't understand, though, again, is how this serves anybody's purpose, making Sherwood look bad again when most people take it as read that he's not going to be there. Well, that's the thing that Spurs have... I can see a purposeful leak, but I can see, I, I, it's difficult for me to understand a leak which serves no purpose other than to, 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 to heap more, more dung on Tim Sherwood's head. The problem that Spurs have got, and it's one of their own making, is that they... Sat, I think they sat to be asked by us too soon. Um, they, that's a different issue. They brought in Sherwood. If he was indeed sacked. They didn't, yes. They didn't seem to want Sherwood, which was weird because Levy spent so long kind of grooming him as the as the kind of white, the Seven Sisters Guardiola. Um, they then lose, <laughs> lose faith with... They lose faith with Sherwood immediately, and as soon, basically, as soon as he's dropped the job, everyone start, everyone at Spurs is starting to think, well, actually, no, no, no. maybe we want, we want Louis van Gaal, maybe we want Maurizio Pochettino. They're, they are talking to other managers. It's not just those two. There, there are others they're speaking to that they're sounding out, um, and it's it's the it's a problem. And I think the most apposite quote that I've read on it was from Sherwood after the Chelsea game, and it was lost as he, he of his quote about the silence being deafening from Levy, but he said that that at some point Spurs have to make a decision. And they do. They have to make a decision about what they want that club to be. And Levy doesn't seem to be willing to do it. Whenever my sister goes to a restaurant... She, which one? What, whichever restaurant she's going no, to. No, which sister? My proper sister. Okay. Rather than my half-sister. Um, goes to a restaurant. She, she chooses what she's going to eat. And then literally as soon as she's ordered... She thinks, oh, no, maybe I should have done for that. And it's, every time, it's really irritating. She tore the waiter back, maybe I want this. And then we go through this whole ridiculous dance, and it's really annoying. And you reckon Daniel Levy does the same? It's, it's the same principle. Yeah, there's one thing, and maybe I'm, I don't want to be lifting a lid here on, on an industry secret, but what tends to happen is managers, who, especially ones who are foreign and want to get into a country, they do this little kind of road show uh, to try and impress local media, friends, and so on. Louis van Gaal's been on a roadshow because he needs a job after the World Cup. Uh, he's, he's the Holland manager. And so you hear so much Louis van Gaal talk. Sometimes, often, they will go and they'll meet clubs out of courtesy. Um, in the case of Spurs, from what I've been told, he did meet with them after Villas Boas was sacked when they were floating the possibility of him doing both jobs through the World Cup and building for the future. I don't know that they've met. Again, maybe they have. Ruud Hullet seems to know because, of course, he came out and says, oh, he will be the next. He's already signed. And, uh, um, I, and, and he, guys, look out for this because I picked up um, my favorite newspaper that's not the Times and uh, um, read one of my favorite columnists uh, who's not a Times columnist. And there was this long praise of Van Hal and Mourinho loves Van Hal and so on. And None of this Bayern stuff or when Van Hal started crying and at Ajax or when he walked out because he'd rowed with everybody. And, and I'm just wondering whether Van Hal is sort of gaining in our consciousness because of this continuous media barrage. Rory, if you said, I want to speak to, to Van Hal tomorrow, you could probably get him on the phone within 48 hours. And so could probably just about every other newspaperman in this country, right? Yeah, I would have thought so, yeah. Exactly. At the, at the moment, not normally, but at the moment, yeah. Because this is a... So, so we're kind of in the middle of a political campaign here. Essentially, yeah. And does this mean that he will be the next Spurs manager, or not, does it simply no, mean that he's promoting himself? It means... I mean, he is an option. There's no question about that. But often what you see is that clubs, when they are conscious that, that change is coming, they are happy to let one candidate talk themselves into a position because they have other candidates who are slightly quieter in mind 
and therefore, if they if they decide not to go with Van Gaal in this in this instance, and they decide to go with hypothetically Maurizio Pochettino, they can then conduct their business with Pochettino on the quiet. A bit like the FA did with Redknapp, and then we ended up with Hodgson, right? The stalking horse. Is that the phrase? It is a phrase, yeah. It is, I mean, yeah. it doesn't it work both ways with Van Gaal as well, I suppose. He's continually... He's pursued, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. The, he's the, doing that campaign the and thing about, with one by yeah. leaving his options open for whoever else might be doing the secret and it, and it, and it, it tempts other clubs into, well, Tottenham might be about to get Van Gaal, we want Van Gaal, so let's give him a better offer yeah. and quicker. The thing about Van Gaal, though, is that he has a World Cup to manage. And if he goes... If he doesn't lock something up before the World Cup, if he goes to the World Cup and Holland have an absolute stinker, which is um, possible, given that which group. is possible. Remember, we're talking about somebody who was the Holland manager before and he couldn't even qualify them for the World Cup. Um, then all of a sudden, he's back out on the street. And, and if there's one thing we know about Van Gaal is he wants to continue managing. I mean, he's a guy who has a tremendous love um, for the game. Said, for me, he's one of the last few legit coaching geniuses uh, out there. The problem is, like with a lot of geniuses, they kind of do their best work, and then after that, you know, some screws fall out, and they struggle to reach those heights again. A bit, of, a bit like J.D. Salinger, perhaps, after he wrote Zelda. Never reach those heights again. All right, too many debates this week because we took up so much time, and uh, Maguire is getting antsy. This issue that comes up time and again about playing the FA Cup semifinals at Wembley. Now, for those who don't know... They play the FA Cup semifinals at Wembley because it's a bigger stadium. You can get more fans in there. You can make more money because you sell more tickets. And most of all, you've got more corporate entertainment because um, big businesses like to do their corporate entertaining in London rather than, say, in lovely places like Birmingham or uh, Manchester. That said, it's Wembley. They like to do it in central London usually, not necessarily at Wembley. That's why most prefer the Emirates. That's the argument for it, and the FA have to pay for Wembley. Anybody have a big problem with this? Anybody want to make the case for, no, it should be held in Villa Park because of traveling Wigan fans and trains to get home and people from the north struggle? I mean, Barrett's gone, but, you know, um, you're sort of a northerner. I'm not sort of a northerner. I am a northerner. I'm just an, I'm an economic migrant. You're from Harrogate, though. That's a bit... Near Harrogate. Yeah. Right? Uh, I don't think... The, I understand why they played at Wembley. Uh, if you speak to players, they like the fact that it's played at Wembley. The players generally are kind of on on board with it. They feel they feel as though it's more special. Because they get a night out in London. Yeah, they get a nice night out in London. They don't see a show. They've got all the shopping opportunities at Westfield. Um, <laughs> it's it's just a great tourism attraction. But th- the players want to be at Wembley, and I, I kind of get that because it, obviously the semi-finals being there I mean the more players get to go, and you can kind of respect that. Um, I would play the semi-finals at the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. Oh, good. There's a place that's even more impossible to get. No, but I, I think that's not even in England. I mean, that's fine. But it's truly neutral, I guess. It's you know? neutral, yeah. and it's it's no harder to get to. It's well, harder it's to get to. Neutral if not, not, not if Cardiff are, are playing, right? That's true. Yeah, I suppose Cardiff. Yeah, that's I suppose that's a, in the unlikely event that Cardiff gets to an FA Cup semi-final. Yeah. It's um, well, not that unlikely. They're no, in the no, final. The final. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I take that back. The, why would you play in Cardiff? Well, because it's impossible because to get I, to. Because I think look, you could easily do it, and you play one at Old Trafford, one at the Emirates. You could. You could wait until you see who's in the semis and then decide where to play them, although I'm not sure how practical that is. That's, that's the obvious solution. So if you get this year's semi-finalist, you get Hull Sheffield United, you don't play it, say, at Old Trafford, you get Arsenal Wigan, you play it somewhere in the Midlands. 
I don't understand why Villa Park is continually raised as, as an option. Because given it's that in it's between the north and the south. It is in between the north and the south, but it's not it's not anywhere near the biggest stadium in the country. It's not a particularly modern stadium. In the in the eighties and nineties, it was fine. It's it's been left behind. You want it in a 60, 50, 60, 70,000 seater, I think. Um, but yes, its geographical location obviously is a bonus. Um, I'd just play them in Cardiff because then you could kind of make a weekend of it. I'd play them at times so that people could actually get home. Um, that's the other thing. Playing them in the evening is ridiculous for people who have to get back to the north. Can you explain why is it so difficult to get home? It's because oh. trains stop well, running. In the because though, yeah. because in this first world country of ours, yeah. the last train to Manchester, which is the... the the second biggest city in the north of England um, is after Leeds. after Leeds is at something like three o'clock in the afternoon uh, because the trains are rubbish. That's the basic yeah. problem. The trains are terrible. I think there was a train at nine o'clock. Yeah, the last one I think is nine thirty. Yeah, okay, I, but if you're if you're at a okay. five thirty kickoff that could then go to extra time, you're a, pushing uh, it a bit. Clive, you, 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 I, th- I think you're a year or two older than um, Rory, so you might be able to explain to this. And uh, um, our boss Tony Evans used to tell me these fabulous stories how. Back in uh, football's heyday in this country in the 1980s, they used to have trains called football specials for for football fans. I don't. Would it be really so difficult that let's say you're from Wigan and you have a ticket to go to Wembley that that would then you could then also buy a ticket to go on a train with other Wigan fans afterwards back home to Wigan? Well, nowadays, we, but what? We, sorry, was your question? Why don't we have footballs? They could do it back then. Why can't they do it now? Uh, Why is it so freaking difficult? I can charter a plane. Why can't I charter a train? Because back then we owned the railways, without getting too political about this, back then Mm -hmm. we owned the railways and uh, we had a say in how they run and then a certain party came into power, sold them off. It was all about profit and they didn't want their rolling stock smashed up by then said... What? Football supporters, yeah, but, 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 but football fans are, are have, have, have been sanitized. Now, uh, right? but, but, yes, but unfortunately, they the, think uh, that they're they still, still going to be who those no, scary Wigan hooligans. But, are but we're not. We're still not in an area where we're, we're, they're uh, going to lay on extra services. That's because things are not run. You're making the big mistake that the rail service is run for the benefit of the public. Which it patently isn't. Yeah, you know, but you'd have thought that ends up paying for it. A football special would be relatively profitable. You got, I mean, how many? There were twenty-five thousand Wigan fans. I'm not arguing against it. Not know. to mention, you could get you could get sponsors. You get people to sponsor it. You could run it straight. To, I'm assuming Wigan is some kind of train station, right? Yes. Um, you could run it straight to Wigan. Easier to get home. I mean, what, 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 all, why is this so difficult to because do? Because they make money out of a service that's pretty poor now. They're not going. You know, there, there is no interest in. in they don't want to improve the kind of service where it is. They make a lot of money out of it. They, they do it once a year. They, they and they still put the prices up for a service that's poor now. They're not going to lay on. They're not interested in spending that extra money in putting on more services. You wouldn't even have to, without being funny, you wouldn't have to even run it to Wigan. All you'd have no. to do is lay on an extra train to, it wouldn't to, happen, Man- yeah, to, from Pic- Manchester, to Piccadilly yeah. and yeah. into Euston. You'd be fine. They're not interested. But they're not interested because they're not running it for the, for the consumer. Yeah. Well, why don't they just why don't you just jack up the prices and, and, and run They it do jack the, up the prices. The prices go up above inflation every year, and they will do, keep doing that okay. for the next 10 years. That's already been planned, but I it's not for more services. I don't have an economics PhD, but if it costs you £40 per passenger, let's say, to, uh, 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 to run the train one way from Houston to Manchester Piccadilly, uh, could you not charge the Wigan fans 50 quid to get home, for example, and make a profit? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm Nobody's really asking to be generous, right? But just, just, just charge what it costs. The answer to your question, Gab, is there is no legitimate reason, reason. why they don't run Thank football you. specials anymore. No. All right. Time now for Rory's favorite part of the show, Quick Hits. Manuel Pellegrini says it would be a victory for football if Chelsea did not win the Premier League. 
anything in their 1-0 win over 10-man Swansea, uh, Swansea for 75 minutes with 10 men, to suggest otherwise? Well, Chelsea laboured a bit, uh, Swansea aren't that bad, but I don't like this kind of, oh, it's good for football. No, there's only one way to win, it has to be our way! Chelsea are, they're not as exciting to watch as some of the other teams. Therefore they mustn't win! They're not nearly as bad to watch as people sort of say they are, they, they can be very impressive when they're going forward, but... That doesn't matter. You this win, is kind of a stupid games. thing for Pellegrini yeah. to say, right? Yeah. He just he kind of screwed up and he probably regretted it the first the minute. Game. Yeah, I mean, you nothing won- good can come from. You wonder this. whether he meant it, it as it kind of came out, but I know I think it wouldn't be bad for football. It'd be great for football. It would show the the importance of of solidity, of teamwork, of resilience, and all all those praiseworthy virtues. So yeah, if, if Chelsea win the lead, they're, they're the team that deserve to win the lead. Yeah, kind of out of character for the man we once called the engineer. Everton win again and continue their charge for top four finish. Tony, were they a bit lucky at the Stadium of Light? What with uh, Wes Brown's own goal and all? They were lucky, but that's what you need to be at this time of year. And Everton are finding different ways to win against different opponents. And I can see them finishing very, very strongly. And I think, I do believe they will pip Arsenal for that crucial fourth place. Ooh, those fighting words. Arsenal are back in an FA Cup final, but of course they had to go to penalties to beat Wigan and Oxley chamberlain apologised afterwards and they went all long ball and big guys up front. Clive, anything good apart from the result that Wenger can take from this? I suppose it shows that his team are in good form from the penalty spot, which considering this how that's how they won the last trophy they won, which is the FA Cup. Other than that, I really don't care. Come on, Hull. There you go. <laughs> Does that not surprise me? I guess he also learned that if Arsenal don't play like Arsenal, then they score. It was a rip-roaring comeback punctuated by a halftime speech from skipper Curtis Davis, who I think, as you know, has quietly been one of the best centre-backs in the Premier League this season. Um, for Hull City, who beat Sheffield United 5-3. Rory, obvious question. Can they lift the FA Cup? And I don't mean by stealing it out of Arsene Wenger's hands. You and your weird obsession with predictions. Um, I th- I'm delighted it's Hull. I think Sheffield United and... You hate Sheffield United. No, no, no. I think they've both been great stories, but I like a final between two teams of a similar level. I think it would have been a bit weird to have... a whole city and Arsenal of a similar level? No, no, but same division. I think it would have been weird to have a third division team in the final. Um, I think Hull could beat Arsenal, yeah. I think that they are a better side than people give them credit for. They're not always great to watch. They're without their two best strikers, which will be a big big blow, obviously. But I think it's possible they could pull off an an upset. And most importantly, I think it'll be a proper final between a team... A big team in Arsenal who genuinely want to win it and a, li- and a smaller team, not a little team, a smaller team in Hull who've never been to an FA Cup final before who it will mean the world to, to be there and potentially to win it. So I think it will be a great occasion and an occasion befitting a competition that needs great occasions. Southampton batter Cardiff, but Mr. Tan's Red Dragons take all three points thanks to uh, Kala's goal and Marshall's multiple saves. Tony, has David Marshall been the best keeper in the Premier League this season? And uh, what chance they stay up now and prove Mr. Tan right? He's been the best shot-stopping goalkeeper in the Premier League this season. I don't think it's a great competition to win because there's very, very many great goalkeepers about. I thought Cardiff were finished. I thought they were doomed, but that win at Southampton gives them a big chance because I can see Norwich getting sucked right in. Fulham and Norwich were seen, but were seen by many as the relegation decider. Well, it's decided. Three points for Mr. Magath Men. Will they stay up? And if so, will it be deserved? Well, I don't think they've done anything to deserve that says they should definitely deserve to go down so if they get really? the points well, 
really? Well, I don't think there's anything that's upset the great football goals that say Fulham must go down. Sidwell and Parker in the middle of the park? That's, but that's not a good... They've got to play... That's what they do. You can't just... Because you don't like them, that's not I a reason to go down. I don't like them. It's Manuel Pellegrini if they, like if they get the If they get the points and finish with three teams below them, then they obviously deserve to stay up. There's still time, of course, for them to change their manager. They've got four games. You know, they seem to make a habit <laughs> of that. So who knows? But as I say, but they need... Is it three points to, to you know to, to get them out of the uh, to get them out of the relegation zone? If they if they manage to do that, they deserve to stay up. Yeah, and they're the team with the momentum down there. Gab, one for you. You wrote a fascinating piece today on, on it was on, excellent, wasn't on it? one of my favourite subjects, uh, financial fair play or FFP for short. Uh, please, would you tell us more? Well, you could start by reading the piece, right? I've read it. Now, the, the interesting the thing about this is Tuesday and Wednesday of this week, uh, UEFA's club financial control body will meet. And uh, UEFA won't say when, but at some point in the near future, they will tell us which clubs have been naughty and which clubs have been nice. And by the first week in May, they will make what they call the settlement offer, which is those clubs who have been in breach of financial fair play regulations will find out what their punishment is, should they accept to take it a bit, like when the prosecutor offers you a, a plea bargain, and that would avoid them then going to the adjudicatory chamber and possibly on to, to Cass. So we're the, really nearing crunch time, and what I found was interesting, and as I explained in the piece, is that the main, one of the main sticking points they found is what they call related party transactions, which is when an owner uh, of a football club, say, sponsors the club or plows money into the club, with a sponsorship that's way out of whack with what the market says. And I explained how they figure out what's out of whack. The take home is UEFA have spent a tremendous amount of resources. They have an army of consultants out there, out there. And I think they're also doing this to A, well, they would say appear to be fair and blah, blah, blah. But B, I think it's also, should they get lawsuits say, look, we have these 1,000 very clever people saying this. And I think, although UEFA would probably deny this, I think there's also a rule that if you've been employed as a consultant by somebody, you can't then testify against them on behalf of somebody else. It's a little bit like, should you ever get divorced, you should uh, speak to all the divorce lawyers in your area, thereby forcing your missus to go and get a crappy divorce lawyer out of the yellow pages. All right, that's all we got time for today. So many thanks to my guests, uh, Rory K. Smith, Clive Petty, Andy Burnham, and Tony Barrett. Andy Burnham, of course, was just a little cameo, um, but we'd love to have you on, Andy, if you're listening, because uh, he's, he's one of the MPs who's a legit football fan, I'm told. He is. He's a massive Everton fan. I'd be delighted this season. A quick reminder, each week you can catch all the Premier League action via the Times app. Download it now and check out thetimes.co.uk for some brilliant writing, especially by the uh, three of us here on the panel. And, of course, you can always pick up... No, you're, you're shaking your head, Clive. I write nothing. I'm just the, uh, what do you call it? I'm the, uh... Some excellent editing there and leadership. I'm the, I'm the M, yes. <laughs> you're, the, yeah. you're the organ grinder. Yeah. And, of course, you can always pick up an actual physical paper copy of The Times as well. Go old school. That's what the cool kids are doing. Uh, we're going to be back next week. Till then, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Hi, I'm Tim Montgomery, the presenter of another Times podcast from the opinion pages called Did You Read? 
It's the perfect weekly snapshot of some of the best writing in the newspaper. Find out more by heading to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central and search Did You Read to subscribe on iTunes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.